Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 4, Alfred Krupp. Last time, the incompetent dreamer and spendthrift Friedrich Krupp had died a broken man on October 8, 1826, with his wild ideas and distinct lack of organization or solid work ethic, he had managed to lose most of his mother's possessions, influence, and savings. Now, his 14-year-old son, Alfred Krupp, was the man of the house. And Alfred, burning with humiliation over his father's failures and the family's new pathetic status, only wanted to be done with a funeral procession. He wanted to be at the Gustavfabrik. That was the only place he could do something to save the family. So, as soon as possible, he left his family and ran back to the factory. There, he was met with the stares of his seven workers. He stared back. The five smelters and two forgers looked at him, as if to say, And what are you going to do, little master, that your father did not? How are you going to give us work so we can feed our families? But what the men in the shop didn't know or comprehend was that Alfred may have only been 14, but he had watched, along with everyone else, as his father withered away not only the family fortune, but his life as well. Alfred vowed the same would not happen to him or to the Gustav Fabrik while he was in charge. Technically, his mother, the widow Teresa, inherited the factory and the Stam house where they lived. A few properties in Essen, a few pigs, and a cow. But as the oldest male, Alfred would take charge of those assets. Of course, with his mother's consent, he was only 14. Physically, Alfred took after his mother, tall and very thin, but he also, unfortunately, took after his father emotionally. He would be flamboyant, but driven, and fortunately for the family, was born with a natural insight concerning metals and chemistry. But as for the immediate future, he also possessed his father's habit of running to his bedroom when times were hard. He would close the door and he would dare anyone to enter. At 14, Alfred was mostly fixed in the type of person he would be. And that person was truly a young, mad genius. The only thing that would change would be his age. For example, he feared flames but worked with fire. He believed that smells were either lucky or evil. Horse manure was his favorite. It motivated him. However, he felt that his own um, gaseous releases were bad for him. So he moved around a lot during that particular time. In short, he was neurotic and suffered from chronic insomnia, which should have broken him down over time and would have most. But this young man, despite his flaws, had something to prove, and that focus gave him drive. And without knowing, it allowed him to harness his madness and his genius. If not for the family situation, as seemingly insurmountable as it was, he would have eventually ended up in the nearest asylum. Of course, then, just as now, when you have money or property, it's called being eccentric. Not only his age, but the slow pace of Germany's industrial revolution slowed him down. But the various pieces were coming together. 
Also, running the family business and attending school were too much, even for an insomniac. And since there was no way he would ever stop trying to salvage the family name and his mother's hopes, school was cut out of his life. As he later wrote of this period, quote, the anvil was my desk, unquote. He spent days and nights at it, going through the process of making steel. But unlike his father, every success and failure was remembered. His approach each time was altered to take in what he had learned and this would go on for years. For Alfred, chasing the goal of cast steel was an art and science. So why was Alfred so driven, always pushing, never satisfied, screaming when a batch of metal went bad, scaring away his family and the older workers alike? No one was expecting him to solve the seemingly unsolvable. His father had practically ruined the family, so, if he couldn't bring them back, no one would have been surprised. But pride only explains a part of it. The humiliation, another part. The truth is that his mother had lied to him soon after the funeral, announcing that her husband had discovered the secret to cast steel and had taught their son before he died. Teresa, a simple creature, thought this would be good for business. But the dutiful son, Alfred, believed her and believed that his father had shown him the process, but that he must have forgotten it. He pushed himself to rediscover what he once supposedly knew. And in his desire to reverse the family's fortune, Alfred did not hesitate to lie himself to potential customers as his mother had lied to him. Letters went out to gather orders informing all that he had been running the company for some time, and that his factory could indeed make crucible steel. But, currently, orders outstripped his ability to produce. Still, he would do his best if they just placed their order. This gambit was supposed to buy him time, but the Dusseldorf Mint fell for his ruse and immediately placed a rather large order. Scrambling his workers, he did his best but all subsequent shipments to Dusseldorf were short of what he promised. So what did he do? Alfred would lie again, telling the Dusseldorf director that he was shocked by this news, all the while still experimenting and trying to achieve what his father supposedly taught him. He carried on like this for the next three years, promising crucible steel only to have orders returned or canceled, while he pushed himself and his smelters, trying to find the correct process. And though he tried to not let a single taller slip through his hands, the returned or canceled orders took their toll on his books. His staff fell to six, and then to five. He only kept the factory afloat by selling tool-grade steel that was used for knives and other utensils. And there were other factors working against Alfred and his Gustavfabrik. English salesmen, with their proper cast steel, were running all over Europe. It's a wonder Alfred got cast steel orders at all. But his most irksome problem was within a stone's throw from his factory. The river Burn was only strong enough to power his factory a few times a year. But because he kept advertising, the orders kept coming in. So he was forced to endure another humiliation by renting the Gutihofnungschutz steam hammer, the very one 
once owned by his grandmother. Yet, events behind the scenes were to soon propel Krupp's and other German enterprises forward. Since 1819, Prussia had been laying the foundations to improve its prospects in economics and war. Indeed, the latter was no longer possible without the former. The government was surreptitiously expanding its Zollverein, or German Customs Union. By January 1, 1834, 36 Teutonic states had signed on banning all intra-union tariffs. The first step to a united Reich was taken. But that was Germany's future. Alfred and the Krupp line had their own dynasty to worry about. And that took its first major step forward on January 27, 1830. Alfred Krupp, after experimenting almost daily since 1826, the year of his father's humiliating death, had stumbled upon the correct steps to create cast steel. He'd done it. His single-mindedness, unmerciful, uncompromising approach had paid off, and he would never change. But now that he could make good his boast, who would believe him? After all, he'd lied to so many for so many years that he'd been able to do it all along. Even Berlin, who wanted to believe him, turned him away, just like everyone else. As for reviving his and his company's reputation, there was only one thing for it. He had to revisit all those companies, taking samples of his rolls of cast steel to show them. Let his work do the talking for him. Interestingly, Alfred almost lost it all that very year of his major discovery. Thinking like his father, Alfred considered using his cast steel for collateral, borrowing heavily, and expanding his works and payroll. But... If he had done that and failed, he surely would have gone down with literally no hope of resurfacing. That fear, and again, thoughts of his father's last years, helped him to decide to go in the opposite direction. Instead, Alfred decided to stay within his means and focus on quality over quantity. Yes, he could now make cast steel, but could he improve upon it? He would again focus his life around this goal and achieve it. So, in March of that same year, 1834, Alfred gathered his samples and headed to Frankfurt, Stuttgart, Munich, Leipzig, and, of course, Berlin. Another positive side effect to his long-awaited success was that he now had something concrete to show the extended family. More cousins and uncles invested in his cast deal. Also, his younger brother, Hermann, was now 20 and could join the ranks in the Gustav Fabrik. Within months, Alfred returned home loaded down with orders. He was the family's hero. On this new footing, Alfred deemed now was the time to expand. He hired two more salesmen and increased his staff from 5 to 11 and then to 30. They all had to sign a loyalty oath but were then trained in the ways of cast steel and the orders kept coming in. Soon the staff was increased again, now totaling 67. By December of 1834, the company could pay its bills on time, but just. Alfred's success was real, but relatively small, certainly versus the number of customers and connections held by the British. He still had to endure decades of overreaching and false starts, but his product was the real thing. 
With his business now steady, Alfred needed his own steam hammer, a way to produce his own steel. But the only place that could make one that he could afford was the Guthoff Nunschut. He again swallowed his pride and bought a third-hand 20-horsepower steam hammer. It leaked, a piston regularly failed, and his men had to form a line to constantly bring buckets of water to fill the tank. But it worked. The factory had taken another step forward. Alfred, as light-headed as he ever would be, allowed hubris to overtake him and started a mantra that his product was the best on the continent. And he said it so many times that it became generally believed. Not that it mattered. In time, his steel would be the best the continent had ever seen. Four years later, fate stepped in again. Alfred's younger brother, Herman, stumbled upon something in the factory that would change their lives. However, because the change was positive, Alfred, as the head of the family and of the business, soon swooped in and took credit for the discovery. Herman found a defective roll that had creases and scratches on it and was about to throw it out. But because Alfred had taught him his process down to the smallest detail, it immediately dawned on the younger man that their forks and spoons were really just rolls manipulated in a certain way to obtain a certain shape, then cut out and finished off by hand. Wanting to test a theory, Herman grabbed a roll, engraved patterns on it, and then used the mill to reproduce perfect copies. When the pieces were cut and polished by hand, before him was their usual high-quality cast steel cutlery, but now with intricate patterns in the handle. Literally functional art. Alfred knew he had the next dining fashion in his hands and couldn't wait to hit the road with his samples. In fact, he had been planning another trip for that summer of 1838, but this one would include a stop in England, specifically Sheffield, the home of his enemy. So he set out to tour Europe, sure of his success. But there was another reason for his trip. Alfred's salesman had visited non-German-speaking countries and had returned with fascinating stories of large cities with large factories and riches beyond their imagination. Alfred wanted to see it all for himself. Making sure everything was in good hands before he left, he knew the 70 Krupanier had enough work to keep them busy and out of trouble, that Herman had become a capable foreman, and that his other brother, Fritz, now 19, was steady enough to keep the books. Alfred set out. For once, Alfred wasn't overly stressed about orders. He knew his new cutlery would sell. Honestly, his only real desire was to see England, visit Sheffield, and perhaps spy out a thing or two about their process. But before he could spy on the supposedly secretive English, he assumed they locked their workers in the factory during the day, just like he did. He would practice his information-gathering techniques on Paris first. Upon reaching the City of Lights, Alfred went round and gathered orders for his cutlery. But that would be the limit of his work-related activities. It seemed that most Parisians were focused on having fun. Industry was something someone did just to survive. Also, the beauty of Parisian culture didn't make an impression on Alfred, 
at all. It couldn't. He was who he was, a man of work and sales. The bottom line dominated his life. The rest mattered not a jot. To prove this, his letters home were only about what sales he had obtained and the possible improvements he thought of in making cast steel. So if Fritz or any of the other siblings wanted to learn about Paris, they were disappointed by Alfred's letters. Still, the writer was revealed. And what we see is that Alfred hadn't changed since those days of hunger and humiliation. Indeed, his first 14 years of life would dominate all the years that preceded. He was still the driven neurotic, never satisfied. No achievement would ever be enough to allow him to rest. Alfred was like his steam hammer back in the Gustave Fabrique, cracked but capable. But he never turned himself off. He didn't know how to, and probably wouldn't want to. Another thing that had not changed was the way he dealt with failure. If a potential client failed to place an order, Alfred would dash back to his hotel room, lock the door, and lay up for days at a time. Why? Because he had failed. But the more he laid up, the more letters were written and sent home. Was Herming wrecking his factory and thus his livelihood? Had the workers been careless and caused a fire that ruined everything? He needed the details about these and everything else. It must be like he was there himself, overseeing it all. Next, he decided they needed a night watchman, and then a second one to watch the first, and then a third one to watch the second. True paranoia. This part of Alfred had always been there, and always would be. By October of that year, 1838, he was ready for England. His disguise was in his mind, perfect. The name on his passport had been altered to A. Krupp, but C-R-U-P-P as opposed to the true spelling K-R-U-P-P. This sounded very English to Alfred. He also had his swan neck spurs, which every gentleman in England owned, right? All set, Alfred was Sheffield bound. But his disguise was as unneeded as it was insane. First, he wore the spurs all the time, as opposed to just when riding, which he didn't even do in England. Another minor hiccup was that he didn't speak English. Although his curiosity was satisfied about the larger world, Alfred really didn't learn anything he couldn't have learned by staying in Essen. Namely, good steel was made with good iron and craftsmanship. And his brother Herman already knew about the superior ore in Sweden, but could not afford to order enough for those controlling the ore to respond to his letters. When not spying, Alfred was fretting, imagining all the bad that could happen to his factory while he was away. He never asked about the workers or their families in his letters. Not even his own family members came up. Alfred left in the winter of 1838, with no major discoveries to bring home. However, he did, despite his best efforts, grudgingly respect the English. Of course, that respect was alloyed with a healthy amount of jealousy. On his way back home, he stopped in Paris, because he was convinced he was coming down with something. His muscles twitched, he was constipated, and he couldn't relax. 
So, there he was, in Paris, March of 1839, all alone, to celebrate his 27th birthday. The year before, he spent his birthday alone with cough medicine. This year, it was with an enema. Once back home, the ups and downs of business continued for Krupp. He brought home lots of orders from France, but then, those very customers started dying off as if God himself were against the German cast steel business. And British salesmen continued to flood Europe. But to make matters worse, another German had discovered the secret to cast steel. Jakob Meyer, in nearby Bochum, was now competing with the steelmaker of Essen. So orders in general shrank, but those remaining customers wanted bigger rolls of his cast steel. So things mostly evened out financially at least. However, fewer entries in the accounting book frayed Alfred's nerves. To Alfred's thinking, there was only one way to meet this new challenge, just like he had all others. Do or die. And Alfred had no intention of dying. He was soon to be constantly on the road, gathering orders and sending them back to his brother Herman. He crisscrossed Austria, Italy, Western Russia, Warsaw, and Prague, and talked of going to North America. He was gone from the factory for several years, showing his samples of forks and spoons everywhere he could. His paranoia was still there, and he pushed himself. His letters home demanded that the workers push themselves just as hard. And while they were at it, they should quit smoking, as a castaway match might burn down everything and ruin them all. During this period of travel, Alfred grew lonely. He tried to change that by turning a customer into a friend. But that potential social experiment was damaged when the man asked Alfred to pay for a loaf of bread during dinner. Alfred, always conscious of the money going into and out of his pocket, had to choke back a fit of rage. But when the man asked for Alfred to pay for the shipping of his equipment from Essen, well, that ended that. A friend was a friend, but business was business. Busy as the Gustav Fabrik was, because of the increasing workforce and the construction of surrounding buildings, the Krupps were still living hand-to-mouth. But then came something that almost ruined everything. In the fall of 1840, the Vienna Imperial Mint in Austria wanted Krupp to build it a rolling mill. This was an opportunity Krupp had been looking for, an opportunity for those living in the Stammhaus with him to go beyond barely surviving. Drawings were made, the authorities approved them, and the machine was built and delivered. There was just one problem. Alfred's payments were not forthcoming. Everyone was polite and smiled, but money never exchanged hands. He stayed in Vienna as long as he could, but he dare not ignore his other customers or stop gathering new ones. So Alfred would travel to other cities with his cast steel samples and then return to Vienna only to walk away again, empty-handed. He had been swindled. But what does one do when a government cheats you? This went on for a year and a half. When back in Essen, Alfred agonized over the long columns of red in his accounting book. Once again, the Krupp concern was on the edge of the abyss. There was only one thing left to do. 
Alfred begged family members to help out. But most had already loaned money and could not or would not loan more. Finally, one relative stepped in to save the day. Kind of. Cousin Fritz Salling agreed to put up $50,000, but wanted in return a 4.5% return on his investment and 25% of the profits. If Albert hadn't been a scrawny, sickened, weakly person, he probably would have strangled his relative with his bare hands. How dare anyone try to move in on his birthright? Then again, he needed the money. A deal was struck in 1843, and Soling came on board as the new floor boss. Once again, Alfred, his siblings, and their mother, Teresa, were back on a very basic diet. Only their spoon and fork sales kept them going. But even that was almost taken away from them in February of 1847, as the popular engraved cutlery was finally discovered in England. The rights were sold to a British firm. Continental trade increased with England. The British firm prospered. But as for the Krupps, the wolf was again at the door. Ironically, Alfred's sales in Austria whose very government had almost ruined his company because they refused to pay for their mill, kept the family afloat. Alfred would say at the dinner table that he wished he could choke Vienna's collective throat, like his relatives who now owned a part of his birthright. But Alfred was about to have one of his problems solved for him during one of his wasted trips to Vienna while seeking restitution. He met with a merchant named Alexander Scholler, who suggested a partnership. The idea was to build a new factory just outside Vienna. As an Austrian, Alfred wished to see Scholler and his fellow countrymen burn in hell. But again, times were hard, and business was business. Alfred took the suggestion back home, and after a family discussion around the Stammhaus kitchen table, it was decided that youngest brother Fritz could be trusted with the books, cousin Ascherfeld would be the floor boss, which left middle brother Herman free to head up the new factory outside Vienna. They all agreed. With one stroke, Alfred expanded the business and rid himself of a potential rival in terms of inheritance. After all, Teresa was getting older and everything was still in her name. Even though the Gustav Fabrik was mortgaged to the hilt and barely surviving, every child wanted a piece of it. But Alfred already considered it his. For the last few years, in his ponderous writings, he referred to it as his works, his concern, his future, his birthright. He literally saw himself as the modern-day feudal lord. The works were his, as was the responsibility for the workers. And their mother, Teresa, made her choice in 1848. Herman already had the Krupp part of the new Berndorf factory near Vienna. So that was his. On a side note, it would not return to the sole director of Krupp until 1938, but only after the Anschluss, and then only after bribing Hermann Goering. Sister Ida, as a woman, could pretty much be ignored, but was given a cash settlement. This left Fritz, who, out of the blue, showed himself a true Krupp and demanded a part of the concern. Alfred was outraged by this betrayal, and yes, he would have done the same thing in Alfred's shoes, but he wasn't in Alfred's shoes. 
He was the leader, but the final word was with his mother. Ironically, it was the silent partner, Fritz Soling, who convinced the alien matriarch to side with Alfred. But this decision would do more than just affect their immediate futures. As Krupp influence grew, German laws were molded around it. A case in point, the Nazi hereditary law of September 29, 1933. Youngest brother Fritz lost, but so too would yet unborn second and third sons of Germany. The oldest male would inherit. For his part, Fritz was promised money and would soon head for Bonn and start his own company. But nothing to do with cast steel. He promised Alfred that much. So on February 24, 1848, the factory belonged to Alfred Krupp. Whatever became of it, it was now all his. But this did nothing to bring in more orders. They all still struggled. The Vienna government's unwillingness to pay even a part of its bill kept them on the knife's edge. Later that year, the family was reduced to selling its own tableware, pictures, and cutlery to pay workers' wages. But better times were coming, though obscured by civil unrest, which had started in Paris and worked its way to Essen. However, the civil unrest in western Germany was quickly stamped out as autocratic control was reinserted. Soon, the time of the great railroads would come, and the United States did not have its own steel industry as yet, and would look around for someone who could help them eventually lay tracks all over that enormous country. Oh, and there was one more thing. Both of Alfred's brothers had, frankly, shown some flair in coming up with their own creations in the Gustav Fabrik, Herman, the spoons and forks, and Fritz, tubular bells. Alfred's little project, worked on in his practically non-existent spare time, had laid around for years. Even he didn't think there was much to it, but no possibility could be overlooked. In his corner of the factory, under a dusty blanket, were two hollow-forged musket barrels. <laughs> 